we are uh, concluding two teaching series, one this morning and one tonight. Uh, the morning series, when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts. Basically, different kinds of doubt. How they manifest themselves and what to do about it. And this is the last in that series. There have been eight altogether. And this morning, doubt's caused by a lack of patience. And I, I want to explain what I, what I mean by that. I think... It is certain in my mind that the toughest test of faith probably isn't loss, suffering, pain, or despair. The toughest test of faith is waiting. It's hard to wait a long time with true expectancy. Have you ever waited in a dentist's or a doctor's office? The people who have just come in, you've been sitting there for 90 minutes. And the people who have just been seated are usually the most alert. They're looking over to the reception area every time a name is about to be called, wondering if it's they who will be called. Those who have been there for an hour or so, they're buried in a magazine. They've lost interest a long time ago. And usually the receptionist actually has to interrupt them and say, no, you, you, over there. And call them when the time finally comes. Waiting, especially long waiting, dulls expectancy takes the edge off it. And expectancy, at least for the Christian, is precisely, precisely what we are, we are called to. Waiting in expectancy. That's really what faith is all about. Anyone can wait if he's indifferent. Like uh, you wait for uh, the income tax return when you know you have to pay. That kind of waiting is just hanging around as time passes by. Anyone can do that. Anyone can wait with a cold heart and a forgetful, doubting, non-expectant frame of mind. But that's not what I mean by waiting in faith. There are people who are kind of half-heartedly waiting for God to act in some disappointing area of life where they've... You don't say it out loud, but kind of given up. Their doubts have won the day quite a while back. They're still waiting, but it's not really waiting in faith. It's just, it's just resignation. So we've been studying doubt in this series. And this is the final uh, teaching, and it deals with the strongest rooted doubt that I know of. The, the silent passing of time with no apparent activity or response from God. No answer to prayer, no change in circumstance, no relief in the trial. How, how does faith stay alive and how does it stay expectant? I don't mean just you've got your doctrinal creed and you've got your beliefs lined up like ducks all in a row. You, you haven't denied any of that. But how does faith stay 
hopeful and expectant and warm when it's called to wait longer than human strength would seem to be able to bear. If you're not there, if you've never been there, you will be there. It's not an if, it's just a when. You can't live the Christian life without going through what I'm talking about. I'm going to argue that you can't live without it because it's God's design for everyone. Point number one. Faith must not only be knowledgeable in its content, but it must be visionary in its outlook. Os Guinness sums it up well. He says, insight must lead to through sight. That's it, exactly. I don't mean visionary just in some weird mystical sense of, of dreaming of some unattainable future when everyone knows it can't be done. I'm not talking about the, the undaunted power of the human spirit. This is not some Oprahism that we're talking about this morning. By visionary, I don't just mean positive, a positive person. I don't mean unrealistic. I don't mean mystical. I don't mean you sputter off all sorts of things you're trying to confess into existence. Faith isn't pretending. I don't mean any of that. I simply mean... Faith must see substance in the promise of God when, as of yet, the promise isn't fulfilled. Faith must see substance in the promise of God when, as of yet, the promise isn't fulfilled. In fact, that's exactly the terminology, the very concept of faith in the scriptures. You know Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance. Depending on your translation, I like the substance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. You won't read a better definition of faith than that. Contrary to much faith teaching, faith doesn't always get what it wants and it doesn't always get what it wants right away. But even when it doesn't, faith still feeds itself on the substance of things still unseen. Things farther up the road. Faith knows what God has promised, even when the immediate need seems to go unattended. Screaming for a solution. When, when called upon to wait, faith feeds itself on the very word, the substance of things yet unseen. So there's a concept. What I want to do is paint a picture of this, an example of it, right from the biblical text. Let me give you some background to the passage we're about to look at before we actually look at it. It's the tenth year of the reign of King Zedekiah over Judah. Jerusalem The capital was in the merciless grip of the mighty Babylonian empire. There would sit Jeremiah. He's in prison. God gave Jeremiah this assignment of prophesying to his people. And after all the instructions, in a weird twist, God actually tells Jeremiah, Oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen to you. There's a treat. 
Tell them this, tell them this, tell them this. Verse after verse after verse, very specific instructions. Don't leave any of this out. Tell them everything I'm telling you to tell them. Oh, they're not going to listen to anything you say. And they didn't like what Jeremiah said. And he's in prison. He's facing the potential end of his own life. And then to make matters worse, God comes to Jeremiah and tells him that the fall of Jerusalem itself was now imminent. So there's the background, there's the scene. And then right in the middle of this announcement from the Lord to Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah something else he's supposed to do. And as he starts, I, can, I, can just, I would love to have been there, Jeremiah going, oh boy, here we go. And here's what God says. Jeremiah 32 6, 7, and 8. Hope you have your Bible in one form or another. Follow along. Of course, the advantage of hard copy Bible is you actually learn where the books are in sequence. Whereas when you do it on your iPad or your iPhone, you just click on the program and there's all the books of the Bible and you bang on Jeremiah and it opens it up. And you never do learn where Jeremiah is in your, in your Old Testament. 32, 6. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, here it is, buy my field that is at Anathoth. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy the field, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. It's back home. For the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Now, see what Jeremiah does with these instructions. You see that in verses 9 and 10, and then 13 and 14. Jeremiah says, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses. That's interesting. God's about to do something, and God wants everyone to know his faithfulness. And so he tells Jeremiah, You get a bunch of people to watch what we're doing now. I love it. Weighed the money on scales, charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel, look it, that they may last a long time. They're going to have to last a long time. Note the emphasis of that last sentence. There's the waiting test. That's what we're talking about this morning. The, the, the passing of time with inactivity. Now, just after Jeremiah has spent all his money on this land, God tells him something else. Same chapter, 24-25. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, look at this, sword, famine, pestilence. 
The city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. Behold, you see it. Yet, yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money. Get witnesses. Though the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. This is not looking good. And so you kind of sense the reserved desperation in Jeremiah's heart. He's, he's trying not to complain too loud. And then God pulls back the curtain just a little bit more. And you see verses 42, 43, and 44. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought I. This is God who did this, okay? These people that God never does anything troubling or bad or violent. There's just so much of the Bible you have to have uh, whiteout for. Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that, that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying it's a desolation, without man or beast, given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Well, fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed. This is what Jeremiah's just done, right? Sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin. That's, that's where he's purchased. In the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, God's going to restore their fortunes. God's, what you have here, the first biblically recorded case of insider trading. God is telling Jeremiah with inside information how things are going to go in the market in the future. I mean, without that explanation, Jeremiah's got to feel like he's buying shares in, in Briax, you know. Something's going to happen down the road. Jeremiah's not going to see it for a long, long time. And, and he doesn't have to believe it if he doesn't want to believe it. No one's forcing him to believe it. But if he's smart, and he was, he will use this information to fortify himself. Not just to endure the tough times ahead. This isn't just, you know, kind of steal up. Not just to endure the tough times ahead, but to see past them with expectancy into a promised future that isn't there yet. Let's be clear. Just having the promise isn't quite enough. Because there's one thing true of all of us in this room. We all have, we all have, at least on paper, the same promises to work with. Agreed? Some people are people of faith in those promises. Some people aren't. The difference isn't in the promises. All Christians have the same promises on paper... Jeremiah doesn't just listen to God's promise about the future. He, he, uh, he buys into it. He's getting ready for it. He focuses his resources on it. 
he actually views his present situation differently than all the other cellmates in that prison because, because he sees the present wait, the present pause, the present silence. He sees it through the lens of God's sure promise. That's all he has. A signed deed that he put a lot of money into that's worthless. He has nothing else. This is how faith waits. It doesn't grow cold of heart. It doesn't just moan or complain. And it doesn't fall into unbelief. All that's true. But what faith does, it starts to invest itself in a better kingdom. Faith, faith pins itself to an unseen future. Well, where does faith get the patience to do this? Point number two. While waiting feels like God is doing nothing at all, in reality, you've heard this before, he's simply doing something different than what we were waiting for. I look at my own life Times when I struggle with doubt or impatience, I realize that a lot of that comes from waiting for him to do one thing while he was working on something else. I was waiting for God to do one thing while he was actually working on something else that I wasn't thinking about. That's what I would call the most stretching part of waiting. Our impatience and the kind of doubts, confusion. It it comes from the fact that because God isn't doing what we are waiting for him to do, we conclude that he is either unable to help us or unwilling to help us. And either way, it's hard to maintain trust in a God like that. The Bible, however, gives a different picture. Here are words you know from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And I want to show you the big word in this verse. For this light and momentary affliction. Don't, don't misread what's... It's only light and momentary because... because Paul is talking about them in comparison with eternity. But, but these things aren't easy. Light and momentary affliction can be terminal cancer. Light and momentary affliction can be bankruptcy. It, it can be a horrendous situation. Light, momentary affliction. And then here's the word, is preparing. That's the word. Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this is only light when it's compared. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Does this remind you of Jeremiah? Jeremiah. 
Go buy the deed to that land. Oh, by the way, find a place to store it where it's not going to actually rot with the passing of time. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. The unseen, that's Jeremiah's title deed. Paul Paul is talking about the, the clashing of two worlds. One is the one we perceive. One is immediate. One is visible. The other we don't often think about as deeply as we need to. It's invisible. It's behind the scenes. It's less pressing on our physical senses. And so faith's ability to wait with strength, expectancy, and patience is is directly tied to my ability to, to substantiate. It's the substance of things hoped for. To substantiate the call and purpose of God in the middle of my present situation. What are you preparing me for that I'm not thinking about? Do you get it? Here's what I'm thinking about. I've got that pretty well nailed down. What are, you, what are you preparing me for that I'm not ready for yet? This has always been the secret of waiting in expectancy. This isn't new. Everybody knows Hebrews 11 and this marshalling of these great heroes of faith. But this punchline at the end of it, these all, pick any one of them. You know the chapter, Moses, Abraham, all the list of people. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them, and then this part, greeted them from afar. I like that. They greeted them. It, it's, like, it's like not just knowing about the future. It's like shaking hands with it. This, this isn't just something I know doctrinally. This is something, it's not here yet, but I'm already embracing it. I'm, I'm training my ambitions. Because my ambitions will naturally lead me just to be as successful as I can be in business, to accumulate as much wealth as I can, to be the best athlete I can be, to be the best student I can be. That's where my ambitions are driving my life. And God's trying to prepare me for something else entirely different. Having greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that that they were strangers, exiles. You've seen them on TV, refugees. Strangers, exiles on the earth, that's here. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. It's not new market, you see. Or Aurora, or wherever you live. If they had been thinking... Of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That's this, not just knowing, greeted. 
They desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. Passage is all about waiting, isn't it? It's what we're talking about this morning. And the apostle says, all these people died without receiving the promised. Their future, their homeland. They never, they never did get what their souls craved. Oh, God, God worked in Abraham's life and Moses' life and Noah's life. Sure. But they didn't get the fulfillment of all God was getting them ready for. You don't either. And here's the important point. This is, this is a big chunk of the very nature of faith. There's a, there's a visionary component. There's, a, there's an embracing and a greeting of where you're going that helps you understand what your life is all about when circumstances aren't going in the direction you want. What is, what is God, what is it about this homeland that God is getting you ready for? Faith always lives between two worlds. Faith is always stretched between the promise and the not yet. But it can survive and it can thrive as long as the person is properly oriented, oriented toward a different country. You're a refugee here. If you have five million dollars in the bank, you're a refugee here. You will leave every cent to someone else who will leave every cent to someone else who will leave every cent to someone else. Man, what are you doing? The kingdom of God is, is, is awaiting opportunities like that. Stop yelling, Don. Last point. Point number three. To wait for God, you must wait on God. For faith to be strong, it has to be fed. Not a big surprise there. I think we know that. To trust the invisible God and to live for an invisible kingdom, that's not an easy assignment. You you need to fasten yourself to it tightly. Because everything in this world will pull you away from that anchor. This world is hostile to expectant faith. This world is hostile to seeing the substance of God's promise. The present age wars against the age to come. The demands of the visible and the immediate tend to crowd out hope for the invisible and the ultimate. You don't have to take my word for that. Jesus said so. Talking about the influence of the word in our lives. As for the, what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. What do you hear there? Well, there's promises, right? Promises to feed faith. Promises to direct your soul. There's commandments. There's examples. And there's promises. Peter says that you, you receive a new nature by these incredible, precious promises, Peter says. So it, they're there. You can read them. You can talk about them. You have your daily devotional book. You go to church. But, but the, this, 
The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. What's the deceitfulness? Well, the deceitfulness is if you just take, if you just take care of this, you will secure your life. That's the deceitful part. What do these things do? Well, choke the word. You ever been in a restaurant? You know where I'm going with this. Have you ever been in a restaurant? Everybody's laughing, the music's playing, everybody's having a nice time, and somebody, all of a sudden, you see. Have you ever seen it in a restaurant? I have. Choking is, is it's, it's, it's just scary. It's ugly. And all of a sudden, the whole place is like quiet as a tomb. Everybody turns around and they're wondering, is, this, is, is he going to get air? Is he going to be okay? People rush over. Are you all right? Can you breathe? What a picture, Jesus says. I have this wonderful promise about, about eternity and about ordering our lives for it and about setting our hearts on it and, and, and how solid that all is and how life-giving and how faith-producing it all is. And people are reading it and they're going... What does that? Well, there's a lot going on in life. Hey, eh? we're busy. And we buy lots of stuff and we have lots of stuff. We buy more stuff. The only problem is we all think that's just life. Who's got time to go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night? Good Lord, we're busy people, Pastor Don. Just, just... Just give us the word. <laughs> Jesus says people choke on the word. When their hearts aren't oriented right. This is the battle for daily devotions. Let's just get practical as we wrap up. They don't seem practical in a busy material world. They don't always feel life-giving. This, you know what it's like. You're reading through your Bible and, and it's the middle of February and it's 26 below outside and there you're stuck in Leviticus chapter 15 for devotions and you finish it and you just go, well, I give up. Like, what? You don't always feel the benefit of them immediately. But they're... they're Cumulative. Like the squirrel stores up food for the winter. We, we, he knows that barren days will come. And it's too late to look for them in the wintertime. This is why we go to church as much as we possibly can. You go more, not less, because you're not getting ready for this city. You're getting ready for another city. Did you feel like a hypocrite? I did this morning, sitting right there, singing, You alone are all I want. I was hoping I wasn't going to be turned into a pillar of salt. We all know it's not all we want, right? We've got all sorts of things we want. The reason we, we, we talk about going to church, getting together with God's people, doing it lots, not less, lots, not less... It's not because he's all I want, but I am trying to train my heart in that direction. 
I think that's the biblical mandate. I'm not likely to do it watching Netflix Sunday night. This is, this is a huge thing. They were, they were looking for another city. They were greeting it. They were grabbing onto it. They were directing their lives in that direction. You're pinning your heart and all your deepest ambitions and affections to another eternal city. Wait on the Lord. It's still the only way to renew your strength. Faith needs something on which to anchor. This world will tear you away from the better city to come. Fight and claw and grab and scratch for every opportunity to remember the destiny of your pilgrimage. Remember you're a refugee. Remember that God is preparing you for things even when you can't understand what he's preparing you for yet. And this is what will keep your faith expectant when it faces the ultimate challenge. The test of waiting. Let's pray together.